Good morning. My name is Micah Solly, and I'll be reading our scripture today from Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, who would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him? For she is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Hey, I'm a preacher you got to talk back to a little bit, so let's go big. Good morning, church. Hey, guys, what's up, what's up? Thank y'all so much for warmly welcoming me. I'm Pastor Justin Carl, and I'm delighted to be with y'all. And just as I was warmly welcomed this morning by your wonderful pastor, KJ, I've always been warmly welcomed here. Because when I came first to Alberta Baptist, we were meeting in the Open Door building in Northport. I was a campus minister with Campus Crusade for Christ. We called it Bama Crew at the time. And I came to the church right after the tornadoes had came in 2011. I know that's still probably fresh in the heart and mind of many of y'all. It's been a dozen years But for us, we lost our home. We were inside of it. We lost 95% of all of our possessions. The Allstate guy said, go ahead and quit filling out the Excel sheet. Y'all don't have anything. I'll give you the max. And the max was enough-ish. But through that, we lost both of our cars as well. God taught me and my wife something really distinct. Because I didn't grow up in the church at all. I, I had been in a church, I don't know. 20 times in my whole life before coming to Christ. And I'd really gotten a hold of this gospel, or maybe God had got a hold of me. And I got a hold of that God had a mission for the world, but there was this huge gap of the church. I was fired up about Jesus and fired up what he meant for the world, but I had no real understanding of what the church was. And it was through the pain and suffering and confusion of the tornado and losing most of my material possessions that suddenly Alberta Baptist and the wider church here in Tuscaloosa and even abroad came into a sharp focus. They can't just have Jesus in a mission. That we're a living, breathing people. We're a part of this Jesus, and we are the people of God's mission. And what God did is he both pointed me to seminary. The people who died in my immediate neighborhood, I lived in Crestwood, 
our cedar crest right here brought a seriousness to my life. I couldn't just be fun campus minister Justin forever. I could still be fun, but I need to know we are playing for keeps, that these were people's lives. And I also knew for the first time I really needed God's church, and I was actually missing out by not taking God's people and my role as a fellow sheep in the flock until I took that seriously, I would miss out as well. So thank you all for welcoming me 12 years ago, welcoming me this Sunday, and thank you for supporting and loving me and my family as we planted Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. You can throw some of the pictures up here. I want to show you a little bit what's happened. So I graduated seminary at Southern. I was on staff as a pastor at a church called Sojourn there. And eventually, they sent us out to plant a church. And we chose Birmingham, Alabama on the east side, the neighborhood of Eastlake, Roebuck, Irondale. Where the church is exactly, most people have never been there, even if they lived in Birmingham their whole life. Because unless you live in that part of town, it's an often forgotten area. So much so that no church plant has succeeded for 30 years in our immediate neighborhood. 30. Notable failures, but there's been no church plant of a similar theology or practice that succeeded in 30 years. And, you know, if you were a gambling person, I'm not, but if the odds on our church, that's a, that's a daunting one. But then to throw in the pandemic, it got way more daunting. Our first Sunday was a week before the pandemic, we packed the house, it was super fun, and I just mentioned, you can hear it in the podcast, hey, how about we cut up the communion bread? I hear there's like a, a, a pandemic going around, and, and maybe we shouldn't all touch and rip of the same piece of bread. And people are laughing on the podcast, of like, oh, I don't know, this Justin guy. Well, we wouldn't meet again for a solid six months, and it would really put the church plant behind for, I mean, a real 18-month delay. I mean, it, it was not a time people were visiting churches and excited and doing outreaches. We weren't even allowed to do outreaches in a lot of ways. But our mission from the beginning has been cultivating a diverse community of disciples who belong to Jesus and seek the good of Birmingham. And God has done just that. We started with 18 adults and four kids in a house. And now the Lord, it's over 100 adults and over 50 kids under 18. So we're being overrun with the kiddos, which is good news. And it's been sweet to see many of the people at our church are new believers, new people who've come to the faith, new people taking their faith seriously for the first time, people that have amazing stories, and God is doing an amazing work. And y'all are one of the only three churches that support us on a regular basis. My sending church in Louisville, one church in Birmingham, and Alberta Baptist Church. So thank you so much that those baptisms are your baptisms. The young men we're raising up as pastors are the same men that you helped raise me up as y'all ordained me. And y'all are doing a great work in and through Citizens Church. And I thank y'all so much. Amen? Y'all can clap for yourselves. How about that? Let me pray for us, and I want to jump right in to what I think is one of the most beautiful stories throughout the Old Testament. Lord, Father, God, as we at Citizens have been in a series on Luke, we titled the series, Jesus Saves. And my prayer for our people, and my prayer for Alberta Baptist Church today, is that we would look at you, Lord, and we'd fall more in love with you. 
We obey who we love. Lord, help us get a clear and beautiful look at you from your own words, from your own actions, from your scriptures to our hearts. May the word of God be the most powerful thing on the planet today and in our lives. May we see Jesus in your, all of your glory. Lord, work in us, build in us, change us. Help us fall in love. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. All right, church, I need a show of hands. Raise your hand if you've ever crashed a party, a wedding, or anything else. All right, love you guys. You're on my team, the light rule followers. You know, you follow them if they seem serious. If not, let it go. The rest of you all side with my wife, that if there's a rule, we're gonna follow it. Now, here's a little guide on crashing a party. If you've never done it before, one, you gotta kind of look the part. You gotta dress up. You gotta kind of find your way in, be confident, be casual, and make your way not to the center of the party. That's too hot. You don't wanna be at the very center. You don't need to be dancing with the bride or groom. No, no. You gotta find like a middle ring of the party. You're not an outsider, but you also don't want the spotlight on you. You wanna have a middle amount of fun at that outdoor wedding or that restaurant you slipped into or bar or whatever it is. That's how you crash a party properly. But we see in this story, there's a woman who crashes the party who does the exact opposite. She doesn't blend in at all, and you know what? She doesn't care at all. She's desperate for Jesus, and so the rest doesn't matter. She stops the whole party on a dime because she sees the great value in Jesus and that no one else there matters compared to Jesus. And the Pharisees are throwing this party. One in particular, we'll learn his name is Simon. And the religious elites, that's what a Pharisee is, have been calling Jesus the friend of sinners. Luke 7 says this, verse 34, and they meant it to be a slur at him. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus wasn't a glutton, and he wasn't a drunkard, but he did eat with sinners all the time. So they called him a friend of sinners. And the Pharisees couldn't stand that he had table fellowship with these sorts of people to him. Because in their culture, to share a table, to share a meal, meant we're friends. We trust each other. There's no reliable police. There's no security systems. To know where my home is, to let you sit at my table, means we have a fellowship together. And this just drove the Pharisees crazy because they couldn't believe any sort of holy person would do this. But you see the irony because these Pharisees are literally mocking God, slurring against God. They're doing about the most sinful thing they can possibly do to God himself. And notice our kind Jesus he says, yeah, I'll come to dinner with you. Indeed, Jesus does dine with sinners. Even the Pharisees, perhaps the worst sinners in the story. Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees, Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. 
Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. The party has been crashed. And it says that she comes up behind Jesus, yet his feet are right there. Jesus isn't sitting in a normal chair like Joey right here. Instead, if you were a rich enough person in that culture, you kind of had a low table, and they put these kind of lounge chairs kind of like this, so that you ate kind of propped up with this, so that your feet would be up and someone could come from behind you, but your feet are actually right there. We don't do a lot of lounging in our culture, right? It only really happens in like a student center at Alabama where there's all these like funky um, uh, couches and stuff that no one ever uses. Have you ever seen a student just lounging there? Like, yeah, in front of 200 of their peers eating Chick-fil-A, someone's just like lounging. It never happens. Or it's in a therapist office or something like that. But here, the scene is it's obviously a middle class and up Pharisee, and he has a house where everyone's kind of lounging around, ready to eat the braised lamb or grapes or bread or whatever they're being served. And this woman bursts in the door and starts weeping, grabbing hold of Jesus. And she's touching him in worship. You can think of the Old Testament like someone grabbing the horns of the altar. She's absolutely desperate to say, I gotta just get near this man. I have to touch him. I must be with him. And she's weeping so much, she has to let down her hair. And a hardworking Hebrew woman didn't let down her hair in public. She's too busy working in, in the market, working in the home, doing all the things. You let down your hair just at the very end of the night. It was an act of an intense grief in public. It's a person in emotional distress saying, I'm all here and this is the only thing that matters. And you can imagine this crowded sort of room falls silent. There's no other thing happening when this person bursts in. We don't know what this woman's sins are. It doesn't tell us. But apparently she knows she has sins. And apparently the whole town does too. When Simon comes in from the grill outside, roasting up some lamb, has a big old pan. You can kind of see him like pushing through the kitchen door. And he sees a silent party. And a woman he knows weeping on a guy. He's not sure if he's a fraud or not. He's thinking, ugh. Verse 39. When the Pharisee Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know. He would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon is thinking, well, this confirms it. I had my doubts too, but I, I, you know, I let him come to my house. I had my doubts too, but this confirms that Jesus is a fraud. And now look, he's bringing this riffraff into my house. He's ruining my party. Because for Simon, it's unthinkable that any sort of holy person, any sort of respectable person would allow this woman to touch him. But Simon doesn't see it rightly. He doesn't see it. This woman sees it. She sees who's at dinner, but Simon doesn't see it rightly at all because Jesus isn't made unclean by our sins. Rather, holiness, worthiness, forgiveness, cleanliness flows from Jesus to us. Our good behavior doesn't make him a savior, amen? 
Forgiveness is a one-way street flowing from Jesus to us. This woman's in the exact right place. It's Simon who's messed it up. It's Simon who's not seeing it clearly. And Jesus puts Simon on notice. Because if you notice, it says Simon thought this in his heart. And Jesus, from across the room, starts addressing what's going on on this man's heart. It's a flashing warning sign that perhaps Jesus is not just a rabbi if he's reading your heart from across the room. And in a clear, firm, but kind voice, Jesus reads his mind and graciously tells him a story. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, not prophet, not God, not savior, but just another rabbi. Tell me, teacher. Well, two people owed money to a certain money lender. Think payday loans on the side of the street. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other owed him 50. A denarii is a wage for one day's work. You finished up on the job site, got a denarii in your hand, and you were off to go home. Someone owes the money lender 50, about two months of wages. Someone owes them 500, nearly two years of wages. It's a big gap, but both of them owe money. Verse 42, and neither of them had the money to pay him back. So the money lender does something, well, that I've never heard of. The payday loan guy forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more. Simon replied, I suppose the one who has the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Simon answers, or as Jesus highlights, Simon judges correctly. The Pharisee picks right. His answer is logical. The one with the greater debt should have a deeper affection, a deeper celebration, a deeper appreciation of the one who's forgiven the debt. But remember, neither person can pay. Yet the one with more debt does experience a greater relief and a greater forgiveness of debt. Jesus is using the story like a boxer to put Simon on the ropes. He's backing him into a corner. He's not doing it to hurt him. He's not doing it to trick him. But he wants to make sure Simon is ready to hear this gospel punch that doesn't end in an argument, but hits him into the heart. He wants to know that this very religious man is listening to what the Savior of the world and Lord of the universe actually has to say to him. And the message is the same for you. That Jesus is so great, he not only wants to save you, but wants to work to lower your defenses so you actually hear him. That's how gracious our Lord is, that he wants Simon ready to hear what will be a gospel bomb in his life. Verse 44, then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, imagine this, he's looking at this woman who's behind him, still grabbing his feet, but he's addressing a man who's the host of the party across the room. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. 
It's so quick we can almost miss it. But the start of Jesus' point is, Simon, do you see this person? Do you even see her? Do you just see her reputation? Do you just see her sins? Do you see she's a human like you? And before God, you better see that you're a human like her or you're going to miss me altogether. Do you see what's really going on, Simon? Or why are you so sure you know it all? Must be exhausting to know it all. It's easy to miss what's really going on, even in our actual life, when we're too busy judging everyone else. You can't be the chief critic and a companion of Jesus at the same time. You want to miss out on what God's doing in your life? Be worried about everyone else's business. Jesus wants Simon to see her, and not just see her, but see how her hospitality shows she actually loves God. Talk about a twist of events for Simon. See her, and then see her hospitality is actually telling a story that she's the one who loves God. In our culture, a good host does what? Shakes your hands, maybe gives you a light hug, gives you a pounds, you come into someone's house, maybe they dap you up, maybe you take your coat, maybe they show you where the bathroom is, maybe they get you something to drink, right? That's like the good stuff in our culture. Say, hey, I planned on you coming, I want you here, you're welcome in my home. Well, in their culture, they did a couple different things. They offered water for your feet, they gave you a little peck on the cheek right there, and they gave you a little oil for your face. And Jesus points out, contrasting it with the woman, that, hey, Simon, you didn't do any of this. You did zero of these things. You are 0 for 3. You're striking out left, right, and center. And Jesus highlights it by contrasting it with the woman. Jesus says, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Remember, feet then were disgustingly dirty. They're kind of gross now, but they're way grosser then. Open-toed sandals, not working sewage, people throwing refuge into the street. Jesus has an itinerant ministry, a walk-around ministry. He's a beautiful savior, but his feet were probably tough, tough look. And so what they did in an ancient house is you would walk up and they'd have a bowl of water for you to wash your feet. If you were a little wealthier, you had a little bench to wash your feet. If you're even wealthier, they may have even had someone to assist you in washing your feet. His bending over might have been hard for an older person. Simon couldn't spare a bowl, apparently. He invited Jesus over, and all these people was like, yeah, I don't know, whatever on the feet. But this woman, in her worship, is crying so much, she's washing an adult man's dirty feet with her tears. How much do you have to cry to wash a pair of feet? This is a flood. This ain't a trickle. She's desperate. And her tears are desperation for Jesus, but they're also a declaration of love. That she isn't just crying, but she's wiping away the dirt so much she's letting down her hair to rub it off his feet. Jesus says, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. Jesus says, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Now the oil was to rub the dirt off of your face to help shine and renew. Maybe had a rag too to push it through your hair. Because back then, not a lot of showers going down. 
And so if you're going to sit and have this intimacy of lounging on couches together, you're given oil just to kind of rub over your face, to make your face shine, to make your hair push the dirt away and say, hey, I'm right here. Let's all look our best and let's really talk together. And when you realize and think about how hospitality is playing out in the story, we realize Simon is the host who's not really a host. But this woman, she's the real host. And she's not even a guest. She's the one hosting the party now. She crashed the party because she's desperate for Jesus. But her affections for Jesus has turned her into the hospitable one. And shown how little Simon even cares that Jesus is there. And before we go any further, there's three lessons we have to take away or we're going to miss some of the heart of the story. And the first lesson is this. Church, when you realize your sin, when you have a moment where you see God is holy and that you are not, run to Jesus, don't walk. Be like the woman. There's a moment where you shouldn't see the story as, oh, I'm Jesus in it. No, you're not Jesus. You need Jesus. You're the woman. Maybe Simon. But if you are the woman, you see, I see my sin. Run to Jesus. Don't delay. Because what do we do when we sin big time? When we really gossip or we really lie or we sin sexually or we do whatever, or we're kind of violent or whatever happens or we say that thing or we laugh at a joke that we shouldn't have laughed at or whatever it is, we tend to hide, right? You tend to think, oh, no one can find out. Makes you not want to come to church. Makes you not want to come to small group, not want to do this, not want to do that. You shy away from things in your life. You shy away from the word of God. And I'm telling you, that is the exact opposite wrong reaction because the safest person in the world with your sin is Jesus Christ. Every single sinner gets welcomed from Jesus the most dangerous thing you can do is to tuck your sin away in your heart, agree with the devil that no one will love you, that no one will understand, that God will never forgive you, when just the opposite is true. Read every story in Luke, in any of the gospel, and say, if I'm a person with the sin in the story, what should I do? And it's run to a Jesus who says, welcome home. Welcome home. The woman is the model. She's the one who's telling you the way home. She's both the mission and the model for us. Run like the woman to the arms of a Savior who says, this is the plan for you to come as close to me as you can. Be desperate for Jesus. The second lesson is this. When you're rightfully desperate for Jesus, you just don't care what anyone else thinks. When you are rightfully desperate for Jesus, you don't care what anyone else thinks. She don't care about these men. She don't care about the party. She don't care about people whispering about her, their stares, their gossips. She doesn't care about any of this because when we find Jesus' approval, like Galatians 1 says, we stop seeking the approval of men. How many of you struggle with people-pleasing? I'll put my hand up. I'll lead the parade there. But in Christ, I don't have to be a people-pleaser. I can just say, I got Jesus, and the rest, I'm just going to be kind. I'm going to try my best, but I don't need anyone's approval on earth if I have my Savior's approval. When you're rightfully desperate for God, the rest doesn't matter so much. The third lesson is this, and it's being acted out, that when we're desperate for Jesus, we reevaluate money among other things in our life. 
And you might say, Justin, what are you talking about? This is not a parable about money. There's plenty of those, but this ain't one of them. Well, it is. We got the debtors, but that's not actually it. It's the alabaster jar. In another story in the Gospels, a similar jar will be said to be worth 300 denarii. That's a full year of work. Most people didn't have any banking system back then, if you're part of the 80%, not the rich, but where this woman probably was. But you kept your wealth in small personal items, kind of like we do today with jewelry, purses, shoes, collectibles, things that had value in the culture that you could keep safe in your home. So when she comes with the alabaster jar and happily breaks it and starts perfuming this Savior, it shows that she is not so worried about her fortune or her future because she found something more valuable in Jesus. Listen how much freedom there is in Jesus. When you're desperate for Jesus and you leave deeply satisfied in him, suddenly you're free from what people think of you. And you're free of material things hold on you. And so this is how Christian maturity actually works. We think we grow up and then we say, Jesus, you don't need to carry me. You don't need to hold my hand. I'm going to lead my life. Well, that's how a child works. Hopefully they leave the home and go for education or work or whatever else. But with Jesus, it's actually the opposite. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you say, can you hold my hand, Lord? Because I'm desperate for you. Could you pick me up? Because I'm desperate. The cycle of a mature Christian looks like this. You grow more desperate because you see your sin clearly and you see Jesus clearly. And you grow more satisfied over time. Your desperation leads to your satisfaction. Your satisfaction leads to a greater desperation because you know his holiness more. You need Jesus more, not less, as you go through this life. And Psalm 42 is my very favorite example of this. It says, as a deer pants for water, oh, my soul longs for you. I know we got some hunters in here. This is Tuscaloosa, y'all. If you've ever seen, if you want to wait for a deer, go by the stream. They got to drink water. If you've seen a thirsty deer, their whole body is heaving and panting in the heat that they need the water or they will dehydrate and die. And God's saying that's not an immature Christian. That's a mature Christian who sees the more of Jesus you get, the more desperate you get. As you grow more satisfied, you want more. As Jesus puts in the gospel, he says, be hungry for me. Eat of my flesh and my blood. Be thirsty for me. I'm the water of eternal life. The more word of God you have in your life, the more you want the word of God. It's a spiritual mystery. It's not a more than less, but a more and more. And that's what God wants to do in your life. And you'll see the evidence. You won't care what people think so much. And you'll let go of the material things. Because your satisfaction starts to live somewhere else. Now the tables have been turned. Simon is definitely on the ropes. His party has gotten incredibly awkward. Jesus has been staring at this woman the whole time, but talking to Simon. Imagine the intensity building of a silent, crowded room. It's hot, it's sweaty. People don't know what to do with themselves. I'm sure someone's like, can I get some lamb or is that inappropriate? Like, I don't know. They said there'd be food, you know. My feet are dirty, but I'll eat, whatever. They're all just breathing in an entire bottle of perfume. 
People don't know what to do with themselves. They're staring at everybody. And after Jesus has highlighted all the ways Simon has failed as a host, here comes the gospel punch. Verse 47 for a guy on the ropes. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. The woman's loving service to God shows she's experienced the loving forgiveness of God. However, Simon's lack of love for Jesus, God himself, shows his lack of forgiveness from God. That this man who could probably recite the first five books of the Old Testament that taught the Old Testament night and day, it was his vocation, his life, his identity, has missed God who's two feet away in his own home. And he's completely missed God and Jesus claiming perhaps doesn't know God at all. She is the forgiven debtor with a greater debt and a greater experience of God's love. So here's the truth, church. You will never feel Christ's love unless you see your need to be loved. You will never feel Christ's forgiveness until you see your need to be forgiven. You will never feel Christ's healing power in your life until you realize you're sick. Don't be like Simon. Be like the woman. Be desperate for this Jesus. It's not about the size of our sins because our Savior is always greater than our failures. Whether you have two months of debt in your mind or two years of debt in your mind, whether you think you're Mother Teresa or a sinner like me, we are the people who are desperate for the Savior. In either way, like the story said, no one can pay off the debt. You can't work it off. We're a bunch of broke people to a moneylender. But good thing, the moneylender of Christ is the one who forgives. He's the great surprise of the story. Whether our sins are little or much in our eyes, we are guilty before God and people that need his forgiveness. And see, the greatest sin we could do is not something we've done. The great sin of all sins is our failure to see our need for Jesus and believe. That's why comparison against other humans doesn't work at all. Because our sins are primarily against God. And the great sin is unbelief. And here's what we do with this. When people feel that sense of guilt, shame, fear, we do one of two things, and they're actually both in the story. It makes an amazing story for us to learn from. Either... We get religious like Simon. We, by our good works, start to compare ourselves to others, eventually favorably, because we're kind of the judge and jury of them and ourselves. And eventually, what may have started as a religious pursuit of God suddenly becomes a religious pursuit in the mirror of saying, I'm going to work my way to God. And I'm the judge and jury, and it makes us very religious, and we focus how we're better than them, whoever them is to you. Or we deny our need for God by getting irreligious, or I like to say rebellious, like this woman had lived. Because we realize somewhere along the lines, if God is judging us by our goodness, then I got no shot. 
See, rebellious people deep down believe, yeah, I got no shot, so I'm going to stop trying. And that's why the religious and the irreligious are rebellious. They're not so different. The religious ends up worshiping themselves and their performance, and it winds up in empty places away from God. The rebellious says, whatever, I'm going to live from the world, and ends up in empty places too. But here's the good news for both Simon and the woman, that Jesus offers a seat at the table for religious folks, for irreligious folks, and he can change your story in an instant. This woman walked in in shame in a way that the whole town apparently knew what she's done or been doing or whatever it is. And in a snap of a fingers, her story stops being about what she has done and instead becomes about what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus can flip your story in an instant. Not just once, but again and again and again if you come as a desperate person and leave deeply satisfied in God. Verse 48, this is actually Jesus' first words to the woman. He hasn't said anything directly to her, but been staring at her the whole time. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who, who is this who even forgives sins? Verse 50, she said nothing back. Said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus speaks to the heart of the whole encounter. She's here because he's God and that he can actually forgive. She's the one who sees rightly in the story, sees Jesus for all that he is. She never asks for anything. She knows she can't bargain with God. She just comes in her need and then starts loving and loving service because she's been greatly loved and forgiven. Jesus knows this. She exercises her faith in coming to him. Love and hospitality overflow from a heart forgiven, a heart that's free, a heart that's renewed. Church, when you serve the Lord in beautiful ways in your home, when you're a champion of forgiveness in your home, when at work you're a champion of service, in your community when you're a champion of love and outreach and helping people see the beauty of God, when you serve in the nursery, when you serve on whatever teams, know you are showing the world a heart transformed by God. That's how it happened for me. I mentioned I've been to church like two dozen times before I came to Christ. My parents' marriage was falling apart. My dad in his desperation says, we're going to this thing that's meeting in the gym in the elementary school. It was a Pentecostal church plant. It was kind of hot in there. To be honest, it was really hot in there. The AFC did not work. That was memory A of my 10-year-old self. But memory B was, what on earth are these hundred adults doing? I had no concept of singing or worship. There's words on the screen. But I see these rational human adults standing here, singing, serving, doing all this stuff. What are they here for unless God has done something in their life? That would remain a mystery of what he'd done until it happened to me. But there's a moment that your service, your love and hospitality, whether it's at church or in your home or in the neighborhood or at work, speaks a better word that God has done something in your life and that you can help fill in the blanks for a lost Justin Carl at 10. Whether they're your neighbor, 50, 80, 100, 20, or 10, or whoever it is here in Tuscaloosa. 
She leaves in peace. Her story is on a new trajectory, on a new path with God. But we leave the story not knowing Simon's response. But it doesn't look great. And the crowd starts to whisper. Maybe they start to argue. Maybe they start to accuse Jesus. I don't know what they do. But at least they're whispering, who is this? Who is this who forgives sins? It's a big moment. Because other prophets in the Bible have been empowered by God to do miracles. To do things like healings. That had happened. But none of the prophets in the Bible have been forgiving sins. None of them would be dare saying things like that. And Jesus, as casually as anything else, just says, and you're forgiven. There's no lengthy confession. There's no lengthy process. We're not going to the temple. He's just saying, and you're forgiven. Which makes the woman no longer the scandal of the party. The scandal of the party is God is on a lounge chair and he's forgiving sins. That Jesus is not just associating with sinners. Apparently, he actually loves them, Simon and the woman. You see, the party, he accepted an invitation that may have been just disingenuous altogether. That maybe they brought Jesus there just to mock him. They didn't give him water for his feet. They didn't give him oil. They didn't greet him, apparently. That the whole thing likely seems like a weird setup to poke fun at this fraud. Now Jesus is delivered saying, well, you don't know God, but she does, but you can come to know God as this whole story has been a deep invitation for Simon to see what's actually happening in belief. The story is often called a sinful woman forgiven. That's like the given title in English above the, the text. But the better title might be Jesus has dinner with two sinners. Jesus loves two debtors. Maybe even Jesus saves desperate people. Because Jesus only saves desperate people. Until you see a holy God and see your sin, you must be properly desperate in order to be saved. You must be properly desperate in order to grow and receive deep satisfaction. There's more grace and love in Jesus' pinky finger than all the sin in the world combined. And let me talk to you a little bit because we're here in the South. And in the South, I rarely meet people who are very desperate for Jesus. They're usually the very opposite. They're very casually satisfied with their life and their Christianity and comfort. It's not just the food, it's the idol of the South. If we just find some comfort and just keep it going, that's kind of the goal, sadly. But let me tell you about the danger of not being hungry, of not being thirsty, of not being thirsty for God. You are in danger of not seeing your sin as wicked. You're in danger of not seeing Christ as holy. You're in danger of not seeing the beauty of the gospel. You're in danger of missing why Jesus would die on a cross. You're in danger of living for a world that truly will not satisfy. You're in danger of settling for self-righteousness, of judging others who you think might be worse than you. You're in danger of thinking you know it all when you don't even know the depths of your own sin. To be desperate from Jesus is a way of life, and to not be desperate is a dangerous place to live spiritually. Our maturity isn't measured by the vastness of our knowledge, but by our nearness to Jesus, both in our desperation and a growing satisfaction in him. I describe it to people like two hands. 
When you become desperate for Jesus, it's like a hook on one hand. And when you find the peace of Jesus in that desperation, it's like a hook on the other. The stronger they pull together, the tighter your grip actually becomes. But if you refuse to be desperate, it's letting go of the peace that God offers you. Likewise, to be desperate but never find Jesus' peace, to never accept it, to never dwell in it, is the other hand letting go too. But when both are occurring, that your desperation is meeting a satisfaction that pulls you to desperation and satisfaction, you go deep and strong in your faith. And that's what Jesus wants for you. As I get closer to Jesus, the clearer I see my sins and the stronger conviction I have of God's love and peace in my soul. The Pharisees had called Jesus a friend of sinners as a slur, and they're right. And that's the best news in the history of the world for us. Verse 34, church, look at him. Look at him. A friend of tax collectors and sinners like us. I invite you now, KJ, for how do y'all finish the service? (laughs) Let me pray for us. Lord, you are the friend of sinners. You're my friend. And I pray for us that we would see you as a friend to us, fellow sinners who have become saints by your goodness, but live in this tension of running to Jesus and being satisfied by Jesus. Let us see how great our debt is, and the debt both is forgiven, but the debt is also fresh as we still live and sin and need you. That the longer we live with you, the longer we wish to be carried. Make us desperate, Lord, and satisfy our soul. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.